Welcome to Neo Academia, where you'll hear real conversations with trailblazing thinkers outside the ivory tower. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and today I had the pleasure of hanging out with Jeffrey West. We talked science, misinformation, laws of scale, Casablanca, and let me tell you, we had a blast. Jeffrey is a theoretical physicist, but don't hold it against him. He questions universal laws of scale, which is also the title of his book. And he relates these laws to our everyday life, which is no small feat for someone studying elementary particles. In his spare time, he happened to serve as the president of the Santa Fe Institute, and he founded some high-energy physics group at Los Alamos. I don't think I've ever felt so at ease with someone so brilliant, and I talk to a lot of smart people. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, because I sure did. And as always, I'm so grateful that you're here to enjoy these conversations with me, so please do engage. Like, subscribe, comment, share, all that stuff. I also couldn't do this without support from Big Nerve. You know, that idea tournament game for innovative thinkers that I keep talking about. I've been working with Big Nerve for a while now to develop a community of innovative, creative thinkers, and their goal is simple. They want to recognize and fund creative thinkers. They're trying to create an entire new profession of innovation where catalysts like me could ask interesting and engaging questions and innovators like you can answer them. There are many different ways to play. You can ask questions, answer them, rate answers, mentor answers. All of this earns you points. At the end of the month, these idea tournaments pay out to the top 30 participants and everybody gains some more experience points and gets known for their expertise. This game is meant to elevate creative thinkers and their ideas. To join my team, you'll have to click on the Big Nerve question in the Theory Gang newsletter, where each episode I'll design a special question relevant to the guest and discussion. All right, here's the episode. Now don't forget to listen all the way to the end for the question. So none of us are having any crises at the moment, so that's good. By the way, I I apologize for last week, well, especially... It was sort of last minute. So thanks, I mean, uh, thanks for adapting to that. No, you adapted as well. And this is something that I think is a good place to start because what I observed about you now meeting you and everybody has this kind of parasocial relationship with people that have an online presence. But meeting you is fully consistent with what I've seen from from your online presence. You just have this relaxed persona, I think. And it's fun and lighthearted. And I feel like a lot of people you meet aren't necessarily like that in this intellectual space. Like, would you agree? Yes, I I do agree. And uh, I guess it does. There's a there's a piece of me that was very much influenced, I think, early in my sort of teenage years by the theater of the absurd, uh, which I don't know if that means anything to you. But anyway, but, uh, and also, you know, sort of 50s, 60s British humor that developed into Monty Python. So there's a piece of me that sort of doesn't take everything so seriously. And, uh, you know, even though, even though, you know, I mean, that I'm kind of schizophrenic because, yes, on the other hand, I'm deadly serious and passionate about my work and what I do and so on. But right. I sort of recognize that there's also this kind of cosmic joke kind of background to everything. Yes, it's it's the Kafka Kafkian kind of nightmare, you know? Like, I mean, yeah. you, you can't get out of this alive. It's, you know. <laughs> sure. um, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, I'm, I was so surprised to hear you say that, but not really, because 
I think everybody that I gravitate towards has like this this tiny absurdist flair to them yeah. because like you said, while what we're doing in science is incredibly serious and mechanized and rational, we also are in human bodies with human brains doing this. Mm -hmm. And I really, I think people think that we have to like abandon our human bodies and our eccentricities and idiosyncrasies to be able to do science. And just not only is it not possible it's just silly to even try to do that yeah. so how do you think things have changed over time at the santa fe institute like with from from your perspective well yeah that's sort of a tough question to answer especially because i'm so i'm part of it so and uh, you know it's hard to get distance when you're part of something really and to be you know well by definition it's impossible to be objective but on the one hand, um, I would say in terms of the conventional metrics of science or the conventional standards, I would say the science and the rigor of it has, has, has got better, has improved, no question. Not that it was bad, simply that it's got much more so. Uh, on the other hand, that's at the cost of being a little less maverick and we were you know we are there because we're we're slightly even though we're integral to the academic system and the network um, we're also a little bit outside it and it was set up precisely that way to do something that's complementary to the canonical way in which we you know most well all universities effectively and most institutes, all, essentially all institutes are set up. I mean, universities, of course, divided into departments, and departments are divided into what have now become semi-autonomous sub-departments that don't speak to each other anyway, you know, and so on. And institutes are highly focused, generally, with one or two notable exceptions. But none has been set up to do what the SFI was supposed to do, and uh, you know, to set up to do something that crosses all the various boundaries okay. of, the, of the disciplines and to bring people together and just to think in terms of what are the big questions and getting people from different perspectives, different techniques, different abilities and so on to, to come together to try to deal with some of these questions, answer some of these questions or even pose some of the questions. And um, ironically, I mean, it was quite radical when it was founded. And uh, the great irony about that is that it was founded by people that were the center and the core of the conventional academia. I mean, <laughs> which is very unusual, you know, that they had the foresight to see that there was what I consider still a kind of, they didn't use these terms, I think, a, a sort of slowly developing impending crisis that more and more we are getting you know highly focused on very detailed individual things all of which is very important i mean that's that is sort of 90% of what we should be doing you know but you know at the expense of not answering some of the bigger questions and some of the bigger issues and thinking in bigger terms. And in fact, the whole reward system, and that was what was remarkable, the reward system 
meaning everything from the obvious things of grants and tenure and so on. But even the respect of your peers is geared towards doing some very specific detailed thing. And, uh, you know, this group of people who were um, highly successful and obviously could get as much funding and accolades as they sort of wanted, decided that, you know, we needed to have another place on the landscape that was somewhat complementary to that and in, in, in some ways in tension with it. And that's what the, the Santa Fe Institute is. And, it, and, and so it attracted at the beginning some people that by definition were sort of mavericks. And, and even though they were successful of themselves, were sort of felt wanted to be a little bit outside of the framework. And, like you? Well, I, yeah, I came later. And, and uh, you know, I'm internally grateful for the existence of the Institute that I found, uh, you know, a place that I hadn't quite realized and I think other people have felt this too. Actually, I was searching for, for much of my career. As much right. as I enjoyed a career that was in a very focused part of science, namely high energy physics. So, so it attracted people like that. And I would say we have less of that now. Right. You know, it's not the quality. It's not, I wouldn't even argue about, I won't argue about the quality, but less so, a little bit less so, and one of the things that reflects is the trend in academia more and more away from tolerating people that uh, want to be a little bit on the outside or want to do something a little bit different. You, you know, the system doesn't reward it. And the great irony, again, of all of that is that the great success in some ways of the Santa Fe Institute is that not that it's become... Um, a, an acceptable place, an almost you know prestigious place in some respects, but that the the things it stood for, you know everything from promoting the idea of complexity science or complex adaptive systems as something wor- not only worthy of study but centrally important for 21st century questions, but also really promoting serious transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary (laughs) kinds of interactions and collaborations. So much so that every university, every president of every major university says, that's what we want to be doing. This is what we're ever... And the the great irony is the more they say that, the less it happens within their universities. This is what's so incredible. And, And I always say it's a bit like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You know, <laughs> the more you say it, on the one hand, or the more you say interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, the less it actually happens. I mean, you... Right. And, um, you know, that's a sort of cartoon version, but that's my Is perception. It? That's my, my anecdotal perception of what's been happening. And, you know, maybe that will change. Maybe not. I don't know. So that gets reflected in the Center for Institute and answered your original question that... You know, we feed off, obviously, the academic community. And um, if the academic community is sort of just not allowing anybody to sort of seep through beyond a postdoc level of wanting to sort of branch out a bit or cross lines and do something a bit different, you know, ask somewhat, you know, speculative questions, if it's suppressing that already at the postdoc level, 
you know, there aren't people that we can sort of bring into the network that are going to be central to the Santa Fe Institute. Now, so this is a small, I mean, it's, it's a gradual effect, but, you know, that, that's one of the perceptions that I've noticed in the, well, I've, I've, I've been at the Santa Fe Institute close to 20 years now, which is a long time, but I've been associated with it for closer to 25 to 30 years. And that is that is the sort of change if, if the, that has taken place. It's a it's not a huge change, but uh, it is something. And it's a, and I bring it up because it's a concern, and it's a concern not just for the Santa Fe Institute, but in fact, I consider it a much greater concern for the academic enterprise and the kinds okay. of challenges that we're facing on you know in the twenty first century. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's kind of part of the reason why I started this podcast, because I feel like there's such a rigidity to what is happening. And it's rigid in the wrong ways, I think. It's headed for demise for a number of reasons that I've discussed many times on this podcast. We could write 10 books about why it's headed for demise. But I think a, a big part of that is the university doesn't know what it wants to be or what it wants mm. to do. Is it a center for epistemological uh, investigation? Or is it a center for vocational? Yeah. What I think we have here is the Santa Fe Institute represents an epistemological challenge to the current paradigm. And, and I don't know, I haven't read a lot of the philosophy on complexity yet, but it, it kind of fucks with the whole scientific mm -hmm. method a little bit, you know? Yeah. What, what do you have to say to that? Because that's me coming into this, me just learning about the Santa Fe Institute. <laughs> I'm like... You know, I'm I'm over here reading philosophy of science, going, well, what 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 are we doing here? This is a little like anarchistic. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's an interesting question. But I, ironically, from my perspective, the Santa Fe Institute is one of the most conservative in, <laughs> in terms of <laughs> because it goes back in the in the with a very small c, because it goes back to what science, you know, what many of us were attracted to science for and to academia for, you know, just at a personal level, you know, I, I, I didn't think I could ever, I would become an academic, but uh, my image of an academic was very romantic. Was, Mine too. You know, you know, it's a community of scholars discussing some of the big questions and so on. Not that I didn't think you'd also have to do the hard work. In fact, I'm, I'm a big, big proponent, of, ironically, of disciplines and being disciplined and working on, you know, very specific problems and doing that, but within the context of big questions and so on and being in a community where we come together and we ex exchange views on that and discuss them and speculate and, you know, sort of bullshit in the best sense of that, you know, and really. And, um, you know, that's what I sort of had this image of, which was probably possibly true in the 19th century. I don't know if it was even true then. But, you know, it probably was true at some stage and it's, and probably lasted. In fact, my image, as you know, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge in England, and that was the image most of us had, I think, that we're interested in academics most of us had of what was going on at high table in quotes, you know, among the, you know, they were discussing the big questions. Now, probably they weren't. But in fact, I, I, I hate to say I'm very ADD. So I'm going to go off on a tangent. So one of my great amusements and disappointments 
was when I sort of grew up and I was invited to be at high table with some of the great things. What did they discuss? You know, the shortest route. How do you drive from A to B, <laughs> from Peterborough to Cambridge? Or how do you do this? And what's, the, you know, a restaurant? Like everybody else, it wasn't. I mean, that, there were some very stimulating conversations at times. But so, I, I, you know, I did have a romantic and maybe unrealistic image. And, and many of us were brought up on that. I mean, I think people still have some of that. And But the reality is moved far away from that. And indeed, what you said at the beginning a few minutes ago, this tension that has always been there, actually, between, on the one hand, the, the university is doing scholarship and, um, you know, very much not concerned necessarily what its impact will be on, quote, the real world. That's one extreme. The other extreme being, you know, as you say, almost a vocational school. We're training, you know, and training lawyers and doctors and practitioners of various kinds and engineers, as you, as it should. But, you know, I think the pendulum has strongly swung, in my lifetime, has strongly swung towards the more practical, the professional school training kind of thing. And, and uh, concomitant with that, universities have become much more corporate. I mean, there was necessarily corporate, to some extent were corporate. They're, you know, there is a, has to be a business plan and so on, uh, sure. budgets and so forth. So that's inevitable. But they've now become much more like businesses. I mean, when I, for example, it was publish or perish when I sort of entered academic field. And that was already sort of new. That was the new sort of buzzword, publish or perish. Now it's publish, perish, and most importantly, bring in the money. And, and that's almost, I mean, I know many cases where that's absolutely explicit. And, and one of the more bizarre phenomena is in many universities, many departments, the amount of space you're allocated is dependent upon how much money you bring in. Yep. And, Which but, makes zero sense, by the way. You know, I mean, as you know, in physics, I mean, what are they doing at CERN? Where is all where is all the money for all the space they're taking up over there? That doesn't, they need to be making more money with that big old thing. <laughs> so that's the thing. So CERN is a fantastic example of the counter to that, of course, in a way. Here it is doing this useless work, quote in quotes, <laughs> You know, discovering Higgs bosons and all the rest of the stuff, the stuff I was, I was still am fascinated by and passionate about. I don't work in it anymore. But, you know, it's fantastic and it speaks well, despite all the forces working in the opposite direction over the last 50 to 75 years, that it is still maintained and it is still doing primarily science for science sake kind of thing. And people mm -hmm. respect that because there still is an interest in, you know, what are the fundamental particles and fundamental laws. And, and then it's complemented with, you know, LIGO and the discovery of gravitational waves and the origins of the universe and all these marvelous questions. Um, and that's great. But, you know, in universities, that's getting squeezed out more and more. And, uh, and more, in, more to the point, what's getting squeezed out more and more are the humanities. You know, I mean, when I was a student, English and the classics and, 
even modern languages were major were majors that many undergraduates were in. It was a huge part of the university. And um, now they're sort of sidelined. And, you know, that's, that's a, again, a, you know, I think a, a warning sign um, and, again, reflects much of what's happened in the culture. That, yeah, uh, I think a lot of what we have now is like this. I, there's this book I'm reading, like, eternally. I read a little bit here and there, but it's um, Making of Middle Brow Culture uh, and kind of talking about how academics have this ire against people trying to kind of translate their work. But I feel like we've gone so far to translate things that, you know, we've stopped producing the things maybe that need <laughs> translating. You know, everything's going to be translated and then we're going to go, okay, now, now what are we translating? You know, I read live on TikTok every day. I read, I read Thomas Kuhn and Popper and stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm translating, you know, in situ kind of like reading a passage and then translating it. And I, I think it's funny. I think it's entertaining and it's enjoyable because it's bringing stuff to them. But then I thought, maybe I should really be creating my own philosophy instead sure. of translating the works of others. Well, do both, maybe, yes, yes. No, but, but trans I will say one of the positive things that's happened is, uh, to you, translation might be, the, I don't know if that's the right word, but but certainly trying to bring some of the ideas and concepts of science and the achievements of science to the general public. And that has improved enormously okay. in the last 50 years. But it's also had the downside that it's sort of published in the New York Times kind of, you know, I mean, that's, it, it's hyped everything up. And um, it's it's sort of debasing the currency somehow. And, yeah. and I feel a bit nervous about that. You know, I, I wrote my book partially to, you know, I mean, as an outreach kind of thing, but also because I was interested in bringing together a lot of things I've been thinking about. But I, I made a commitment to myself that in writing this book, I would try to, two things I would try to do, which I wasn't sure I could do, one was I would make it amenable to sort of the intelligent layperson. Actually, I said at the beginning, intelligent to my mother, who's dead, by the way, been dead a long time, been dead. And my mother, by the way, left school at 13 and can barely read or write. But I felt, mm. you know, what did her son actually do with all that? <laughs> like, let me see Jeffrey, what, do you do? what do you do that, all day? Explain that to my mother. I mean, it was, but but that was sort of the, but the idea to the kind of intelligent layperson, that means ultimately there will be no equations in it. And that's the language I use. But I would explain sort of everything. I wouldn't dangle everything. And I wouldn't sort of pull things out of the hat. I wouldn't be a Malcolm Gladwell and so on. You know, gee whiz, you know, fantastic. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, that's what the publishers wanted, in fact. But yeah. I felt I couldn't do that. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to uh, badmouth Malcolm Gladwell. Quite the contrary. I think he's... He's his own thing. He's his own thing, do and he does it brilliantly. I mean, you know, it's yeah. not my thing, that's for sure. Or my friend Nassim Taleb, who also is a sort of similar kind of thing. But they, they serve a very important role, there's no question. But I wanted to stay sort of um, true to the science. So yeah. everything that came up, I wanted to try to explain in English. Okay. And, uh, I think you did. And I, you know, yeah. I worked very hard at that. So in, in that sense, I'm very pleased because... It did sell well. It did well, maybe not as well as the publishers wanted, 
because Never. I made it, I, you know, I, I made it much longer because I wanted to explain everything. But there's no question that the trend overwhelmingly is to move in that sort of gee whiz, quick, tweety kind of mm-hmm. mode. And that mm-hmm. does serve a purpose, and I'm okay with that. But we also need substance. And, of course, it's, it's a real problem because the, you know, and I'm a bit of a platitude here, but the educational system has, of course, totally let us down because I shouldn't need to have to explain in that book that I wrote, spent three or four pages explaining what an exponential is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in the language. People use it all the time. But what I learned in my talks outside of academia, corporate events and other kinds of fancy schmancy kinds of things, that amazingly, people actually didn't really understand what an exponential was and what it implied. And that was a bit scary because if you don't understand what an exponential is, you'll never get that we're in deep (laughs) doo-doo. I, let me terms. let me say this. I think there's this is a misconception I think amongst people who try to write for lay audience. Being deeply integrated with a lay audience, I realize there's specific t- types of people in a corporate setting. They they are not concerned with exponentials. Why? Because their day to day is yeah, incremental. Course, absolutely. But what I will say, there are certain people who are obsessed with exponentials. Yeah. Lay people, right? So, for example, I and don't hate me for this, but your example of Godzilla you gave in the book, why Godzilla is like physiologically impossible. (laughs) I took a picture of Godzilla as a green screen and put it as my background on TikTok and said, you know, Jeffrey West says Godzilla is physiologically (laughs) impossible. And it's this kind of debate bro scenario online where people will come and be like, that's not true. And people loved it. They went crazy. And I had people come up. And they went through, they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think he's wrong about how much Godzilla, you know, should weigh. They had so much. I was blown away. That by, is very interesting. I didn't know that. This is very interesting. They, they And so I had people coming up, on, like, to tell me specific things and, like, to correct you and, like, say, actually, if, if you thought about all these other things. So suffice it to say that people aren't dumb. No, they're just absolutely. selectively interested. Yeah. You know, like they're obs- that, this guy is obsessed. He's like, check out this YouTube video, check, read this. You know, he's obsessed with reptiles, fossils, Godzilla, <laughs> the all all potential. You know, yeah. we were like, does Godzilla have a cloaca? I mean, it was hilarious. That is great. I mean, mine was sort of just you know, I mean, it wasn't be, to be taken seriously. There was a point to be made, and it, that was right. the, you know that if. If Godzilla is made of the same stuff that we're all made of, meaning the biosphere is made of, it simply can't exist. One of the things I don't think I said in the book, I've often said in lectures sometimes, I said, you know, you you asked yourself about birds and flight. Well, you know, evolution overcame, overcame that and developed wings and the kind of musculature and physiology and metabolism so that birds can fly. And then you could ask, how big a bird could you have that can still fly? And it's not very big. But of course, that's the whole point. If it's made of the same stuff as us, with the same kind of physiology and so forth, there's a very 
sort of strict limit to how big a bird can be. However, evolution has got round it because now we have birds that are humongous. We call them airplanes. Right. right. I mean, and how did evolution do it? It evolved us and our brains who then okay. figured out how to get round it by going outside of the biosphere using different materials and so on that have greater strength and a different mode of flight. And that would be true of Godzilla. It's not that an object like that couldn't, in principle, exist if you made it out of, you know, titanium and what else? I don't know what else you'd have to do. But I'm not an engineer. But you, I'm sure, a, very, a smart engineer could, in principle, design something like Godzilla, a kind of science fiction-y thing that would be all mechanical. And, of course, the whole development of robots and all the rest is is just a, a science fiction version of that. But mm -hmm. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm frankly, I mean, it's sort of interesting for me. I'm less interested in that. It's sort of interesting. I'm not, I'm not a science fiction-y kind of person because I find science fact to be so extraordinary <laughs> and so amazing. And it is so much harder than science fiction because you have these constraints of these laws. You can't sort of do anything. You can't sort of make things up out of the blue. Right. right? You mean? can't say there's a Godzilla. There can't be an, a land animal that is a mammal like us. We could not evolve to be something the size of Godzilla. Now, that's sort of interesting of itself. And in fact, in terms of mammals, you can't get something even as big as a the biggest dinosaurs. Right. I mean, I think all of this is a jumping off point for curiosity. And I think this is what we're missing weirdly in academia now. Um, and, and it's weird that we have to be outside of it for this. Because I think for a period of time, if you were a curious person, you were going to end up, you know, in physics or science or something, or, I mean, philosophy, who knows. Mm -hmm. But this, all this Godzilla talk, what this showed me is that people are innately curious yeah about things that they want to think about. But if you put them in a university setting, one guy was like, I think I'm going to get a PhD in paleontology. I was like, oh gosh, good luck. Because you don't really get, this isn't what you're going to get to do. You're going to do other stuff. So for people who are innately curious, going inside the academic assembly line, I feel like it kills it. And I'm wondering, I think this is kind of a universal law. There's some like consilient laws that I'm observing, like bundling and unbundling. Like as we've bundled all these things into the university, certain things are starting to unbundle from it, like curiosity, for example. Where is that going? And what's going to happen to curiosity and people who like to think like that on the outside of the university? Where are they going to rebundle? So that's, you know, just something that I'm kind of, what do you think? Well, no, I, I agree with you that the way it is, you know, I mean, most people who end up, first of all, going to college and then deciding they'd like to go to graduate school and they get interested in research, whatever it is, it could be in the humanities, but if in the sciences and so on, are usually extremely curious and want to understand something. And now a certain number go in and maybe even the majority go in because this is a route to getting a better job, you know, a career, a career path and so on. And that's fine. I think that's, you know, what a part of what a university is for. But, you know, there's a now minority that are, are very curious and have this kind of boyish, girlish curiosity from young age. How do things work? Why are we here? And so on. 
and, and, and the academic system, except in few cases, eventually beats it out of you because um, I mean, it needn't. Um, and, and part of it is because the pressures now are so intense. The pressures to um, get this piece of work done, to get the funding for it, to maintain the funding, to get it published in a high-profile journal, and to get positive feedback from your peers, to get a reward from whatever the professional society or from your department or university. You know, these are enormous pressures. So the professors are under great pressure, typically, and that gets translated down often to students. And I, I think it's just so much greater than it ever was so that time for ruminating or to take out three months to think about something, puts, put your work aside and start either thinking about some interesting issue that's turned up that you'd like to explore tangentially or take out for summer and start writing your great novel, even though you're working on, you know, genetics, I don't know, whatever, you know, that those days are long past. I mean, I think people could do that once upon a time. And, uh, you know, we can't do that. And time, I mean, one of the things that astonished me about my own work was to discover that my work led me, sort of the, the conceptual development and the, sort of the equations that follow from it, led me to realize that built into the very nature of our interactions is this speeding up of time, this accelerating pace of life. And more and more did I become to um, speculate that the major origin of much of the problems we face in society is it can be put in terms of the accelerating pace of life. And there isn't time. There's getting less and less time to just speculate and start thinking about other things and just even take time off. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, is so amazing is how few academics take vacations, including me. The idea that you would take a month off and go to a villa in uh, Tuscany and say, you know, fuck my work for a month. I don't know anybody that does that. People used to, I used to know people that, I mean, people in academia yeah, right. used to do that, used to go, right. uh, but people don't do it's it. It's a vice they, now. They feel they can't afford to do it. Yeah. And in fact, one and of the things, do, you know, it's The amazing. social pressure is like, Yeah, the wow. pressure even, I mean, and I, and, and of course what happens is you get conditioned to that. Yeah. And I can feel it myself. I can confess, you know, I'm 82 years old and I don't have to do anything. But and I most of the reason I work is because I enjoy doing it and I things I want to get done. But there is I'm always amazed. There's a piece of me sometimes in the evening when I want to watch a video. I suddenly feel guilty. Oh no! <laughs> I should be working now. That's changed oh, me a lot recently in the last couple of years, especially since COVID. But yeah. I had that, and I think that's I'm not atypical. Probably many times I overcame it. But other times I would yeah. say, no, that's right, I should go back and do. Because most of my career, I have to say that when I stayed up, and I used to do that, as many theoretical physicists did do, you know, you stay up for till two or three in the morning trying to find the bloody minus sign or the pi or whatever it is yeah. that's missing. You can't, where the hell did it, what happened here? 
Uh, My husband calls this chain smoking. He's like, you take years off your life when you do this. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. It's a it's a fantastic experience, actually. And I do that. I can't do that. I'm too. It's just I don't have the sort of stamina and energy to do it. But it is interesting, going back to what I said earlier, that um, you make this kind of Faustian bargain unconsciously that I'll play, I'll, I'll, I'll join in the system and do all this stuff, jump through all the hoops and all those because then when I get tenure and I have time, then I'm going to go and write my great novel or do my great opus and I'm going to change science and this great idea of anti-gravity. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> something, you know, you never do it, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, I was very lucky because by accident, I ended up being able to do that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, and I feel extremely. There might fortunate. be some irony in there. I don't, I, I mean, you know, there, there's, it's a little woo woo, but there might be some irony in there that when you're charging full steam with full intensity, it doesn't happen for you. Like I was thinking about how all this pressure makes people assholes and um, experiencing this in the context of medicine. So I left biomedical science and went into biotech. And it was my job to meet some of the world's expert oncologists or cardiologists or whoever. And and it was my job to develop relationships with them and hear their best ideas and kind of, you know, shoot the shit. And what I found is there's this like band of people who are not the best. They're like second tier and they're absolute shitheads. Hmm. And I'm like, I feel like it's the pressure that's cooked them. Whereas the people who are flying high, they are the nicest people be- and, and they make it look easy. And the rest of these people are, are so angry because they spin their wheels. Mm. You, is this a, am I, is it just me or might there be well, some generality to this? I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm in, I, since I've been at the Santa Fe Institute for the last 20 years, I'm sort of out of the loop on some of that, to be honest. I mean, we're sort of, we're a bit, you know, there is a piece of Center of Institute that's a bit ivory towerish, after all, mm. and um, which is good and bad. And so I'm less. I mean, I, I um, many years ago, I was one of the people that I, I think I was not unique, termed the uh, introduced the term "revenge of the C students." Yes, I love it. Which is very unfair and very cruel, but it was that. The people, often the people that end up in supervisory, administrative, and positions of power to make decisions are people that didn't make it. It's a bit like, was it George Bernard Shaw made, you know, those that can do, those that can't teach, which is also a very cruel statement. But, you know, we understand it's not true what he says, of course, in general. But like my statement, the Revenge of the Sea Students or others, there, there's a piece of truth to that. Sure. And it gets reflected in bad behavior by either you have poor teachers, poor, poor educators, and some whom end up frustrated and angry and take it out on their students, whether they're, you know, kindergarten or whether they're in, uh, you know, graduate school. And uh, the the administrators who get in positions of power who may have resentment of, not having success and so on can behave like assholes. There's no question or editors, you know, or reviewers. So that happens. I, I, I hope it's a minority of people. And, but I, I've certainly, you know, it's totally anecdotal, my experience. And uh, 
it's but I've certainly been aware of it and it's well I mean this is something I'm interested like across disciplines like I think that the band of assholes exists in every discipline I think I have speculated by the way and I'm certainly not the first to do so that the people ending up in our governments I mean in our you know in our congress are many of these kinds of people Mm. and I would say and here I may get into big trouble but I think the the kinds of anger and revengeful behavior of people, especially on the right in the Republican Party, almost reflects that. The the resentment against expertise and against science and against academia that exists in at least a minority is somehow reflection of this. You know, it's very deleterious and I, I... regretful because it's it's bad for all of us it's bad for them too i think it's you know i mean just let me say my my impression of politicians and indeed of administrators overall personal experience has primarily been quite positive in the sense that the ones i meet are extremely well-meaning you know many do in a certain sense maybe this is too strong are almost self-sacrificing and they want to do good. They want to be facilitators. They want sort of the best science. They want the best use of the dollars and so on. It sometimes get a little bit twisted and so on. But I think most people, I mean, it's, it's a bit like what you said. I just realized I'm just sort of brainstorming here. You, you do learn, despite everything, that most people are quite smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, they really are. You know, and I, I have great respect for that. And in the same way that I, I've learned that most people in position in administrative positions of various kinds, or even those in extremely powerful positions, whom I've met both in politics and in, in corporate life, actually are very well-meaning. It may be that actions speak louder than words, so maybe walls put over my eyes, but I've always been quite impressed, I must say, how they want to do good, but, you know, it's the problem yeah. that it may be... The road be. to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, I've often thought, I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, but the poor guy has been so, you know, <laughs> trashed, and he says some stupid things, in my opinion, or Elon Musk, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I have met Elon Musk, actually, and I've talked with him, but, you know, these are not evil people. You know, they're not purposely trying to fuck everybody over. I mean, it may be that they want more money and more power. Okay. Maybe. But, you know, so maybe did Martin Luther King, actually. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know? So I I try to be slow to judgment. And I think that's a good good rule in life. Yeah, I think... The problem that I see, you know, the one that you're kind of outlining here with the resentment towards expertise and the well-meaning experts or what even, you know, I mean, you said well-meaning admins, but I even think some well-meaning experts is hubris. Yes. This is, there's a problem here all the way around. And I noticed this at the Collective Intelligence Symposium. We kind of tiptoed around G, you know, and, and I was sitting and hanging out with Maxim, one of the speakers, Maxim, for a while. And I was like, if you don't go up there on that panel and mention general intelligence, I'm going to flip a gasket. And so they, they started talking about it. But 
we tiptoe around these things because we're afraid of them. And I think the problem is like, if you think about the experts or people who are more knowledgeable or educated, they probably do have a high general intelligence and therefore they think they can extrapolate their in their experience and expertise and all this stuff to everything else. And then the people who are ignorant see all this experience and all this expertise just flying out for free. They're like, I could grab some of that. So either way, it's hubris on both sides yes. and a refusal to kind of meet in the middle and say, I don't know everything and you're capable of learning if you want to, but I know what I'm talking about, about this specific thing, exactly. like with 90% confidence. Yes. What we're not having those conversations. I feel very, yes, I, I resonate very strongly with what you said that, well, first of all, you know, there tends to be, especially these days more and more, a cultivation of arrogance and narcissism. And that gets in the way of many things I just said, actually. I mean, and that perverts much of what people try to do and want to do, even though they may believe and may be quite well-meaning. But that's kind of self-deception of, you know, importance and arrogance tends to dominate things. And the thing that you said in particular, I strongly resonate with, the idea that when people get rewarded and get put on a pedestal for something, there is a propensity for them to then think that, oh, yeah, actually... You know, I, I can make uh, statements about global warming or about the economy or about racial relations or inequality, even though I've never, you know, I've never done any work in it, I've done, but, you know, I have an opinion. So why not? And I see that, I don't get in trouble for this one either, is that I've, I've known quite a lot of Nobel Prize winners in my career. And some have been good friends of mine and they're obviously extremely smart people. But, you know, the truth is that some of them are in the right place at the right time and they do it. And that's fine. That's good. That's the way life is. And more to them that even though they may not even realize it, they took advantage of it. And so that deserves credit and reward. So then they become Nobel Prize winner and some are quite modest about it and recognize that. But, you know, once you become a Nobel Prize winner, for example you then get invited to all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the work that you did whatsoever. And not only that, you're paid some humongous fee to pay for it, and you get all these invitations, and people treat you as a VIP, put you on a pedestal. So within two to three years, you become an expert in everything. And you pontificate about everything. And you get invited to things that you know nothing about and you give a talk on it. So, you know, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but I've seen it firsthand many times. <laughs> and I realize, you know, and it's sad and you do see that. It's not that they're being malicious in any way, but they're being no. human, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I may decry it and I have been quite sarcastic about it, but I'd probably be exactly the same. Yeah, you know, I'd do it too. You know, yeah. once you, you know, your ego, it's very hard to control that. And you get this feedback and you're told how brilliant you are. It's, yeah, I'm sure Daniel Kahneman would have something to say about yeah. this, I'm sure. So, um, you know, and um, it's a unusual. And I've known some that don't do that, by the way. This is not a right. general, it's just some. And it probably mm -hmm. is a minority, actually. But enough to make it 
bothersome and annoying. And it's part of being human, you know, and yeah. it's the unusual that can resist that and say, well, you know, I mean, it'd be nice to get up and say, well, you know, I was invited here to talk about, you know, climate change and so on. But, you know, I have no expertise in it whatsoever. And my opinion is not worth much more than yours. I'm happy to spend 20 minutes and tell you what mine is as part of the discussion. But, you know, um, others, you should really listen to the experts. You know, you should. The, really pro get... the problem is that's probably the person you should listen to. <laughs> yeah. The person says, I don't know shit about this. So anyway, no, it's sort of interesting. But you, but on the other hand, that can be important to have someone coming from the outside that's obviously smart and gives some. So again, it's a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But I do agree that one of the things that is, that has been, that has become a huge issue across the entire spectrum is this cultivation of narcissism and mm -hmm. uh, uh, putting us We don't have a beginner's mindset. And I think this has something to do with the ambition in our society. And, you know, we talked about kind of the treadmill, the academic treadmill, but it's also a corporate treadmill. There's all these kinds of false meritocracies that we slingshot ourselves upon. And what happens is once you, like you said, you get that success, whether it's Nobel Prize, you move up to a VP position, you know, you get promoted, whatever it is, you then resist the beginner's mindset for whatever you endeavor mm -hmm. towards next, because you're like, well, I'm already, a, yes. you know, kick ass at this thing. I, I'm not a beginner. And it's this like false sense of security that you have some crystallized knowledge that can't be taken away and that shouldn't be taken away. And I think one of the things I think needs to happen with respect to education is we need like educational sabbaticals for people where every five to 10 years, you're like, you know what? I really want to take some time and study this thing, whatever it is for the sake of studying it. And then you you're forced into being a beginner again. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know how we would facilitate this. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe we won't have jobs in 10 years, but you know. <laughs> maybe. maybe doubtful. The people who work hard will definitely keep jobs. I mean, that's, you know, that's going to happen. But I worry about the future of education. But at the same time, I think the curious people, you can't stop. No, They're going to be curious. Sure. They're going to find. So I'm more interested and in, in curious myself to watch it play out. But I do tend to worry about the people who could be curious. Just they just need you need to stoke the fire a little bit mm -hmm. for them. And there, I think it, we're, we're missing opportunities with that. So one of the things uh, I want to talk to you about is your kids. Oh, kids? Yeah, your kids. Oh, wow. You stoke in the fire with your kids. Your son's a professor, right? Yes. And your, your daughter's at, is she at Google or Stanford? No, no. So let's see. Okay. So I have two children. One is, as you say, is a professor at USC, University of Southern California, in Earth Sciences. And as we speak, he's somewhere completely remote in the middle of nowhere in the Amazon in Peru. Lovely. <laughs> Doing whatever he does. Awesome. Uh, he's um, one of his many interests is the whole question of water and long-term sustainability and all those kinds of questions and so on. Mm. So anyway, he's another scientist. And, he's a, and he was, by the way... An Olympic silver medalist. Wow! In rowing, 
Yeah, yeah, he's a big guy and he's very strong and he's very dedicated and, you know, goes at it. He's passionate. He's a go-getter, yeah. Yeah, he's very good. And then I have Aww. a daughter who um, decided early on she didn't want to do anything academic because her, but both her parents and her brother had PhDs and that's not what she wanted. And she also was a rower. She was an NCAA champ rower at Brown. But she went into political science. And okay. she's very much a do-gooder in the best possible, I mean, a possible way. Okay. But they moved recently to London. That's what I mean. They, oh, okay. they both moved to London. And she now works for something called the Tony Blair Institute, which is, which okay. is an NGO trying to do good um, yeah. around the world. And so you've, I mean, you've had some kind of impact on these kids. Like, I mean, some, well, you know, presumably, you know, you, you <laughs> often wonder, you often wonder when you, do you have children? I do. Yeah. I yeah. have one. So, you know, it's, yeah, of course you have an impact whether you like it or not. And you hope yeah. that it's positive. And uh, no, it's great. They, they've been, I'm very, very proud and pleased about my children. They both, yeah. out and their families have turned out very well. Uh, well, the the reason I ask is because I think, you know, you're an octogenarian and I think we don't like I don't you don't get to have many conversations with an octogenarian of like your stature. Right. You've been through a lot. You've done a lot. And kind of I, I remember reading. Oh, gosh, now I'm going to say who it is. But I remember reading Eric Kandel's um, no, autobiography. Yeah. And uh, I was so enamored with Eric Kandel when I was in grad school, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Funny story, I actually walked into a sliding glass door when I saw him at a conference, like so <laughs> stupid. But I, I read his autobiography after that. And I just thought I was so sad. I was I was just like, wow, because he was in in there. He barely talks about his kids. And he was kind of like, I, I, well, I don't think I was that great of a dad. Oh. And I think we don't for women, especially in this profession, it often feels like you have to choose between one or the oh, other. Very good. And anytime you, you make constant choices, it's not absolute choices. It's these small choices here and there. But we don't talk about, you know, having a family when you're intensely interested in something. And it, I mean, it seems to have worked out for you, you know. Well, it's very interesting you bring it. Now I understand why you asked the question. Yes. So I think, you know, anybody that goes, well, it's not just academia, but any career, you know, there's this tension between family on the one hand and your work and your advancement and so on on the other. And academia is, I always think academia is more so because, at least in my academic career, because part of the culture is you work in the evenings. I mean, I would probably work 80 hours a week, I would say. And that just doesn't go easily with family. But I made a decision early on, once I had family, that that was... Actually, I, made, I wanted to make it priority. The family was priority. And in fact, for a number of years, I barely gave talks. You know, I wouldn't... I, I didn't go to conferences, or very rarely, so I could be home. Because my wife, who is a, <laughs> a Jungian psychoanalyst... <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> uh, was also had a private practice, and so there was, you know, juggling balls and so on. But I think we both were very strongly devoted to the children should be were central, and family, more generally, were, were central. But it's always a balancing act, and it's extremely complicated. So, you know, I, I never took a regular sabbatical my whole career. 
Um, right. So it is, it is, it's a tough, tough issue. I just talked about my, I can see it with my son. Look, he's in, he's in Peru in the Amazon for four weeks. Right. He has a wife with a, with a two-year-old and, and she's pregnant. Yeah. I said to him, haven't social services been in touch with you to <laughs> hold your way, abandoning yeah. your wife and children? Anyway. No, they figure it you know, they have a, I mean, they yeah, it's it difficult, out. Though. they have to figure it out. And there's balancing, yeah. you know, he, there's huge balancing act goes on and each couple, each family, whatever it is, has to um, clearly compromise in various ways. But I do think yeah. it's very important. And I remember, it's funny you brought up Eric Kandel, whom I don't, I didn't know, but I have a great respect for. I knew people that worked for him, were with him. And I've, I've, saw a couple of interviews of his, which I found very impressive. But I, there was a book many years ago written by a man named Stan Ulam, which may not mean much to you. Do you know who Ulam was? Mm-mm. Oh, Ulam was a great mathematician. He was sort of a one-man Santa Fe Institute back in the 40s and mm-hmm. so on. He's most famous, unfortunately, for his, he worked with Edward Teller to develop, to figure out how to how the bomb work, you know, to do actually yeah. the triggering of the bomb. So that, because he was part of the Manhattan Project. But Stan Ulam lived in Santa Fe, stayed in Santa Fe. He decided to stay here. And he's famous for many things. But he wrote a book that was something called The Life of a Mathematician, short book about yeah. his life. And I remember reading it, and he was talking about, you know, he did this work and he did this conference and he talked with that and blah, blah. And then it's sort of in the middle. And then I got married. And then I went to this conference and I went to that conference. And I thought, wait a minute. Yeah. Is, you know, one of the most important events in your life. And yeah. it's like, oh, you it's know. Tough. And then I, you know, then I went for a hike up the mountain. And then I, yeah. I mean, it was like, and there was almost nothing. And I knew, by the way, I was good friends with his daughter and family. So I knew that, but I never, I never brought it up to. I meant to at some stage, but I never had the kind of the balls to. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, because she was very, she was. He was a very lovely man, by the way. It wasn't like mm-hmm. he was this distant. Well, as Candell seems to be, I didn't meet him, but he came across a very warm person. And, and he has, and yeah, he has that affect of just. Yeah. Kind of so like, I was very surprised. You know, I was surprised when you told me, actually, that he, you know, he, he felt anyway, he didn't spend enough time with his children. And that's very common, of course. I mean, it's not uncommon among scientists to feel that they not spent yeah. sufficient time. I do. I, I would not say of all the regrets and the, the extraordinary guilt I carry with me about my life. <laughs> this is not one of them, actually. That's good. To tell you I'm glad story. to hear that. Yeah. No, I don't yeah. feel that I... You know, there are various things I did wrong with my children, or I didn't do, or, you know, whatever. But not spending the kinds of time and so-called quality time, I, I don't feel that. There are various kinds of time I didn't spend with them. I felt that I could have done, but that's a whole different thing. Sure, yeah. I mean, this this was a pivotal moment for me. I was reading... So we decided we were going to have a baby and we went on a vacation to kick it off kind of, it. you know, I just gotten a grant. So I was like, oh, we're going to go, let's go to Mexico and kick off our baby moon kind of situation. <laughs> and I took Candell's book with me to read on the beach. And I was I like, I remember putting it down and I was just like, 
fuck this. Like, <laughs> like, it was a wonderful book. But when I got to the end, I was like, I don't know if I will be that kind of woman who could, like my boss and everybody was like, oh, you have the baby, you come right back to work, it'll be great. Yeah. It was not like that for me. My brain, I mean, as we know from the evidence we, we found, your brain changes during pregnancy. Yeah, sure. And mine certainly did. I wanted to be with my baby. I yeah, wanted sure. to be with my daughter. And the system just, you know, didn't really allow that. And uh, I, I think I kind of, that was like the justification for myself to be like, okay, you don't have to do this. No, um, it's a tough one. And I, I think for women, especially more so because there is, despite gender. Nobody and, else is carrying the babies, to be gender honest. Gender equality, there is a difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, the, what yeah, I was going to no, say was, sure. one thing I wish that there were is a way for us to, for people who are curious and kind of maybe the overproduced elite or what what have you, but people to be able to be involved in a scientific pursuit or, or an endeavor. Could I get involved somehow in helping with a research project? I know how to do research. Yeah. I've written publications. Sure. Like, would you see that in the future that there's any way for this, this huge abundance of overproduced elites, mm. maybe they're not that elite anyways, but they have this huge amount of super specialized expertise that just is gone. Like it's evaporated. What Shouldn't we be like doing something with that? Well, probably, I mean, yeah. The answer is yes. The trouble is the system, you know, there aren't mechanisms. We haven't developed mechanisms. I thought with women we would. And just, to, mm. you know, there have been, I mean, I know many cases where, there's been this sort of halfway house, women of uh, developing families, doing research or teaching and so forth. But it's very tough. The trouble is, you don't get rewarded for it. I mean, right. the other thing is, you know, if anything, institutions take advantage of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Rather than seeing it as supportive and solving a social problem or whatever. They, they pay very poorly. It's the same, you know, it's very similar to using adjunct professorships and so on, you know, people teaching courses for pittance relative to the sort of permanent staff. Women in that situation tend to be treated very poorly. We mm -hmm. still have not adjusted. I think Europe does a much better job, is my impression, allowing uh, many months, six months off of pregnancy leave including the husband, you know, which doesn't right. happen. I mean, here it's sort of hopeless. You know, you're lucky to get a few weeks if you're lucky. Right. You're rewarded for work up front, I guess, right? Like yeah. tenure supposedly is supposed to be after you've proved yourself. Yeah. But the problem is, it's like women have to be proving themselves during their reproductive years. That's a little yeah. bit of an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a hell of a problem. I know I've been close to several women that have had to go through this, and some choose not to have children, of course, mm -hmm. because of this. That's, well, that's bad. We need smart women having children. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a big issue which society, and more generally, but in particular academia, has simply not come properly to terms with at all. Um, right. You know, I'm not up with the way various universities have tried to deal with it. I don't know any yeah. that have done very well with it, frankly. No, uh, I mean, you, I think you can't legislate these values. You can't yeah. enforce these values where they're not appreciated, where the, I guess the market forces don't value this. No, not at all. So, not I mean, 
yeah, these are things that we'll have to come to terms with that I don't, I don't know why I'm asking you, but I'm just. No, 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 I'm a, not a very good person to, you know, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very empathetic and sympathetic. And I certainly in individual right. cases, I've tried very hard to, you know, facilitate a situation that people can still be, you know, intellectually active yeah. and raise a family. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see the solution for that. There are some things that I see solutions emerging, but that one is one that I think will be yeah. shrouded for a while. But one of the things that occurred, I guess maybe there'll be a last subject we touch on. One of the things that occurred at the intelligence symposium we were at was I noted how many times like the word collective stupidity was used and then <laughs> misinformation. Yes, I, use, I have to admit I used it. Yeah, you were funny. I enjoyed your talk. You brought, you, like I said, you brought this kind of comfort to the to the the discussion. This, like, you brought you changed the the discussion in a way that felt like okay, we can be real about things. It felt very mm, snobbish, you know. It felt like just I didn't like it. And so yesterday, I was actually at the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Misinformation, hmm. and they brought in Michael Strevens. I don't know if you're familiar with his I know the name, work. I don't know him. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he was talking about, I mean, I'm watching this and I'm cracking up because he's basically telling this committee, science is kind of chaotic. I can't tell you what's misinformation and what's not. It's all bullshit until it's not. <laughs> and then it's probably still bullshit. And these people's faces were, they were just like, yeah, real, like really? Yeah. They were so upset. And, and I think there's this general, maybe people are waking up to it, but there's this general problem about the word misinformation that like we got to smash it. We have to stomp it out. We have to snuff it. And it's like, well, what, well, what the fuck is it? So <laughs> what, is, what is your general thought about this? Because I don't think you really like addressed this there at all. Yeah, I don't know. Miss it. Yes, I mean, there's, there's a difference, I think, between what, what I was thinking of as collective stupidity versus misinformation. I mean, they're obviously interrelated, but, uh, mm -hmm. but misinformation of course, is now becoming, you know, it's, it's certainly become much more uh, prevalent, whatever, whatever it means. We'll talk about what it means in a minute than it was 10 years ago. I mean, I don't think, I'm not even sure the word sort of existed 10 years ago. I mean, certainly people talked about being misinformed and, uh, and but it had a benign, you know, the word missing, to be misinformed sort of had a certain benign thing. It's like being that you looked up uh, you know, the time of a plane and it turns out, you know, either you misread it or you asked someone and they said something and it was wrong. Well, sort of, you know, you were misinformed or whatever. Or what was it, the famous scene in Casablanca where whatever it was, the German Gestapo Nazi says to um, Bogart, why are you in Casablanca? And he said, I came to be near the waters. And he says, but we're not near the waters. And, and Bogart says, I guess I was misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of, you know, that's sort of my image of, of misinformed and therefore yeah. by extrapolation misinformation. Now it's taken on a whole different thing. And mm -hmm. arising, I suppose, primarily because of the Trump um, phenomenon and that, uh, you know, uh, just sort of, apparently making things up and telling things that were, for want of a better word, just lies, basically, with consequence. And I think that's the thing that's important 
is that those have powerful consequences. And now, of course, with AI and ChatGPT and all the rest of it, it's become much more threatening because, especially with the whole internet and social sure, media, it's ominous. inevitably, because it's hard to tell. So in that sense, that's a whole different question, of which I do not have expertise for sure. So, But that, although I have strong opinions that, you know, I don't know how you solve it. Uh, you got to get your Nobel first and no, then you right. can talk oh, about it. That's this. right. That's right. <laughs> then people listen to me. Um, but, you know, that it, it's hard to combat. Hmm. It's now becoming extremely difficult to com combat uh, misinformation. If a newspaper in the past, when it was when newspapers were a dominant medium, and that's what people learned their news about, or, you know, Walter Cronkite on the evening news, and he said one something wrong, they were, mm -hmm. you know, you learned about it extremely quickly, and they would apologize. Mm -hmm. Well, that simply doesn't exist. I mean, first of all, those media are now subdominant. But in the media that we have, where we learn most of our news, you don't even bother to they don't you know there's not even if, if there is any apology it's down in the fine print i mean metaphorically speaking right. you never hear it no one cares and you and in any case because going back to what i said the pace of life is so accelerated yeah no one pays attention no one cares anyway mm -hmm. you know it's sort of remarkable that in a certain sense very few people care that Trump was lying the way he does and continues to do so. Yeah. There seems to be no penalty, no penalty well, any longer. I think people expect that politicians were lying. And arguably, this the first case we really, I mean, Watergate, yes. right? But then we saw this with Clinton. You yes. know, I mean, we've seen a couple of these things where we're just Absolutely. like, huh, weapons of mass destruction. So I think we're just now immune. No, to, I we're think you're so right. Immune we're immune. Lie. And secondly, yeah. Because of social media and because of the power of the internet, we can check on things much faster yeah. and disseminate that much faster. And then it just becomes, so what we considered fact, true or false, now becomes a matter of opinion. You know, I mean, it's... You well, know, it's not so easy. Like, I mean, at the committee yesterday, they were saying, we didn't think it would be this hard to fact check hard sciences. I'm a social scientist, she was saying yeah. from Cornell. But she's like, I didn't realize, like, the studies about masks, we really didn't know what the hell we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So there, but again, it's like this reliance upon the certainty of science. Yes. That we just don't, we don't have that. And who's going to tell people that? Yeah. So that's another, another thing that, of course, has come up, which has been a shock to many of us, is that, uh, you know, okay, so we, it's easy to talk about politics and the corporate world and all that and sort of being hot. High and mighty about it, but in fact, you know, to discover that in academia, you know, people have been people are being corrupt and cheating. I mean, it's 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 actually a fairly small minority. Nevertheless, we had this image that we were sort of pure, you know, <laughs> that you know, mm -hmm. no one, you know, and and if they did, it was like that being the old version of misinformed that I talk about. Oh, it was sort of an accidental mistake. Oops. And I yeah. remember one of the first major ones 15, 20 years ago was with David Baltimore. You know what I'm talking about? He was Nobel Prize winner, president of Caltech at the time, but he mm. worked at Rockefeller University. 
was a very, very distinguished sort of biomedical guy and a piece of work that I think was in Nature that he was, that he, his, he was in his group. A postdoc was the lead author. And they discovered, I, I have the details wrong, but that she made up a large part of the data and it was all wrong. And, you know, that was astonishing. And Baltimore, of course, immediately denied knowing anything about it. And, of course, I felt that was reasons to condemn him, frankly. I mean, right, I you should know what's I going mean, on in your lab. Well, no, I mean, did he, you know, okay, I mean, okay, it's, it's a borderline case. I mean, it is hard sometimes. I mean, I trust sure. that when my postdocs or collaborators you know, do the do a certain analysis and they say that's what it is or they say, you know, this was the data and so we don't do experiments, but, you know, just analyzing right. it, I have to believe them and it's true and I right. can't, uh, you know, no longer, in fact, I mean, in principle, I could check them, but I would have to do what you said earlier, I would have to go back and take a whole course in statistics <laughs> and data analysis yeah. because mine is so out of date you know, to do that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's in a certain sense, understandable. Um, but, uh, you know, it's terrible. But that was one of the first that I was, you know, that I think shook the community. Yeah. And he was exonerated eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we see many cases that high profile journals, that papers have to be retracted, or someone has to apologize or defend themselves and so on. Yeah. And so one of the questions, of course, that's begging about all of that, was this always like this? You know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, it's just because we didn't have the spotlight on it. We didn't have the kind of social media and the means to really mm-hmm. go back and look at things in the way we can now. That mm-hmm. uh, you know, we just assumed everybody was honest and forthright and they didn't sort of, you know, only showed you data that was good and the stuff that was bad they chucked in the waste paper basket you know do we know that we do know there have been cases in the past but they're unique you know that was the thinking these were so unique Mm -hmm. but maybe it was as much as it always was or which i suspect there was more than we ever thought but i think it's much more now and that goes Mm -hmm. again to the whole thing we talked about earlier the extraordinary pressures on people yeah. You know, well, so and the pace of, uh, pace of research. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's very tempting. I mean, you know, you do, you're doing so, you're working on something. This is obviously right. It's good. You know, we're doing this experiment and we have this data. Well, it doesn't quite support it, but that's because we don't have quite enough data. But let's just, you know, shoehorn it in. You know, I can easily extrapolate to see how people sure. get carried. You know, I've got to get the grant. We've got to get that bloody proposal finished and in. We've got to get, you know, all these things build up. And we are human beings. Yes. We're full of our foibles. So, mm-hmm. you know, but how you control this and how we monitor it is totally unclear. And I don't think the academic community has at all come to terms with that. Um, no. Well, you you took this in a disinformation direction. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. You're no, no, rather no, misinformed. I did, indeed. No, it works, though, because um, I was just writing about this. And I think uh, a lot of it has to do with our incentive structures. Like, yes. whether or not it's the rate of this has accelerated or not, it's coming to our attention as a problem. 
and we have to address potentially some of the incentive mechanisms that are causing this to occur. And I think we also have to decide what's the price. What is the price of these things being falsified and how much does it cost us? There's also, there's a very interesting price that does really concern me. And that is the propensity when, you know, in society in general, when people transgress, we introduce new rules and new policing and new constraints and yes. oversight and yes. then you box everything in. And then, yes. and what does that mean in academia? It means even less curiosity, even less right. speculation, less willingness to put your neck out and say something or do something, even though that's not directly related to mis or disinformation. Right. But, but it's, it's that the system sort of had this sort of Soviet style image of control. Right. Right. And, uh, and so that would be a terrible price to pay. But I'm fearful that that is the price we're going to end up paying. Yeah, I think what's happening is that's we've got these watchdog organizations that are coming and finding these things. And I'm like, that's really cool that we have people who are yeah. looking at Western blots and going, did they copy and paste this shit? Right. I think that should be rewarded. That's really cool because yeah. it sets up an intrinsic kind of monitoring to say, if you falsify this, we don't catch you. But I also think that this is being used as ammunition from, um, I don't want to name any political groups, but to say that academia is full of shit. Um, And so that's a problem. So I think we need to address misinformation on all sides of the aisle. And I think it has to do with us not utilizing all the information we have available and all the people who want to think about it. Mm -hmm. And somehow there's there's roles here for each each of these groups and i think it's just it's going to take a while to shake out but i agree i worry that more regulation on this is going to decrease innovation yeah that's the price you often pay you know i mean so i do i am concerned even though i recognize that it's a really um, challenging problem and it's a terrible issue that's turned up i think one of the things in the this will be the final thing we talk about i'll let you hop off but One of the things I notice and one of the things I worry about in complexity is that it feels a little bit obfuscatory. Like there is some like obscurantism possible in there. One of the weaknesses I think I've picked up on in certain areas. Can you say anything about that? Well, yes, it can, because it's the very nature of what it is. It's dealing with the sort of the big messy world out there and, and it covers sort of the entire territory of socioeconomic and biological, biomedical problems. And also there's this other piece to it, uh, part of its beginnings with chaos and dynamical systems and so on. So you put all that together, it's inevitably going to produce sometimes all kinds of obscure manifestations that also make it sound much more sophisticated and complicated than it actually is. And that's always an issue. But I would say it's not much more than occurs in most other fields. So if I think of the fields, first of all, I'm familiar with, which is high energy physics, in particular string theory and uh, general relativity, origins of the universe. My God the obscurantism that often gets 
expressed, yeah. you know, because it, it, that attracts a whole different kind of audience, a sort right. of more science fiction-y sort of right. way out there audience, you know, especially about multiverses and multiple dimensions and so on. So that gets all kind of, you know, airy-fairy. So the, the, the complexity doesn't even, I think is less obscure than some of that stuff. But then there's another kind of obscurantism that all you have to do is pick up a copy of Science or Nature, the two supposedly most prestigious journals, especially in the biomedical and genetic sciences. Talk about obscure and talk about, you know, things that are dealing with one diddly problem that, <laughs> uh, you know, and it's so obscure with an obscure notation because you have to mm, know it. That's, I think, more esoteric. It's like esoteric. very... Maybe that's so a better word. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for correcting yeah. me. It's much more esoteric. Yes, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. It's Talmudic and it's, yeah. you know, it's like you're reading, if you try to read uh, mystical, <laughs> the, the mystical Kabbalistic literature or something, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of a, a extraordinary because of what science and nature claim that they want to publish. That's the way, that's the context I'm giving it. Mm. As, you know, they always tell you they want things that are for the general audience and for the general, <laughs> it's quite the contrary. And of course, there, I'm going now, going off a complete tangent. And there, that's because they're beholden onto the pharmaceutical and medical industry. Yeah. Or it's slightly disgraceful if you actually think about misinformation, disinformation, and corruption. The two most prestigious scientific journals have advertisements in them. Ah. They rely on advertising income. And that is Mm. absolutely, talk about mightier than thou in terms of their opinion pieces. Nature is a special case. It's unique because it's a private, it's a private journal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Science is truly disgraceful because it's a publication of the AAAS. Yeah. I mean, my God, if, the journals I'm familiar with, Physical Review or for Physics and so on. Yeah. I mean, the idea that there would be advertising and it would be, you know, was horrifying. Yeah. I, so I, in, in, I'm making, I'm really going way out there. I consider that corrupt. Interesting. I think, well, the market forces, I think, of the giant machine that science has become the business. Yeah. That's just, I think, another big, huge cog that keeps the wheels turning yeah, in, in perverse ways. Of course. Yeah. So there's yeah. many other things I could focus on that you, I don't know, corrupt is a very strong word to use in this context. Maybe perverse. <laughs> but I it think does, it, you know, it gives yeah. you pause. You want you, you know, we shouldn't take it for granted, which is what we do. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we should ask, what are, the, what are the consequences of the fact that nature and science are to some extent supported by the pharmaceutical and biomedical industries. Yeah. Well, I mean, all these interests, all, everything is interconnected because all these journals of Sevier, it requires the constant growth that a capitalistic market requires, you know? And so it's, it's just part and parcel for all of this. And um, (laughs) this conversation has gone in so many different directions. (laughs) I know. I love it. This is my favorite. And I think this is why I enjoy, you know, the complexity stuff. Maybe I'm a little galaxy brained on it, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I I enjoy this because there is there are aspects of interrelation. There are threads throughout all of this. And so 
I really appreciated you going with me on that ride. Oh, yeah, today. I was, I was let, no, I was quite happy to let you determine the direction of the conversation. It was sort of interesting. Yeah. These are things I don't normally talk a great deal about. But Good. No, I was, I thought, of course, originally it would be more on <laughs> in my narcissistic way on my own work and the kinds of things I do and all my great accomplishments yeah. or whatever, yeah. or even on the collective intelligence symposium from, from a, a couple of weeks ago and all the questions. That, so it's kind of interesting that it went in a quite different direction and all these yeah. sort of um, problems that are the the ecology, if you like, of mm-hmm. you know ecology and science and so on in its broader context. Yeah, that's kind of what I try to do here with neo-academia. I'm not exactly sure what it is yet, but to me, it's a constellation of all the things that are happening to human knowledge and how, I mean, even having a podcast is somehow kind of involved in their ancillary and some communication aspect, but that's kind of where I go with these things. So I try to bring threads that maybe you wouldn't have talked about already but you still have a, quite a bit of knowledge. Yeah. No, that's true. I, I get, you know, I've been on many podcasts and interviews and so on. And I would say most of the things we talked about did not turn up as much less about the actual science than it is about, as I say, the context of science. Right, the system itself, yeah. yeah. No, th- thanks for making time for it's me. Great. I'm so no, glad we pleasure. finally got to connect. Pleasure, pleasure, Natasha. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and I'm so glad you stayed for the Big Nerve Challenge question, which is... What could be an interesting solution to one of the problems in science that I discussed with Jeffrey? That could be defining and evaluating misinformation, catching the intellectual overflow, fixing a culture of hubris, fear, and narcissism, or managing scientific fraud. Check the newsletter for a link to the Big Nerve question, and if you like, check the timestamps for links to each of these topics.